We're in the third week of our current series all about the head-heart connection. Science has finally caught up to scripture and affirms that we don't just think in our minds, we also think in our hearts. And spiritual growth comes from connecting the mind and the heart. Our faith asks us to make certain decisions or choices about who we will be or how we will live our lives. And those decisions aren't just intellectual. They're formed in our hearts as well. So two weeks ago, we looked at the decision that we need to make when it comes to Jesus of Nazareth. He himself posed the question to us, who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? And he demands that we settle this question for ourselves. And it's complicated. It's complicated because he's universally recognized as a sage and he claimed to be the son of God. That's complicated. So that means either he is who he said he was and we should worship him as God or not. Basically, he's a lunatic, a liar, or the Lord. To really follow the Lord, we've not only got to believe he's Lord in our heads, we have to believe in our hearts. We have to hold him in our hearts. Last week, we looked at the Christian call to greatness, the Christian call to greatness, and the challenge, the decision, the choice that call presents. Jesus said the path to greatness is through service. We grow more like him and, and so more uh, great when we serve both one another in our day-to-day -day life and serving here in our church family. So also last week, we invited you to sign up to serve this fall. And if you'd like, you can still do it. Just drop by our Next Steps kiosk on the concourse after Mass. If you're online, our chat host can help you out. Today we're going to look at another head-heart choice we make about our lives, and essentially the choice is this. We choose whether to think big or think small. We choose whether to live generously or to live with jealousy and envy. Just for clarity, sometimes a distinction is made between envy and jealousy, but for simplicity's sake, we're just going to go ahead and regard them as synonymous. Though it should be acknowledged up front that envy or jealousy can take different forms. There is, for instance, possessiveness. That's, I want what you have. And then there is possessive suspicion. I don't want you to have what I have. And most regrettable of all, there is resentment. I don't want you to have what you have. It's all basically about being ungenerous. Generous people celebrate others' victories. Generous people promote others' good ideas. Generous people find joy in others' joy. Envy, on the other hand, does not. It does the opposite. Envy is sorrow at another person's success. Envy is resentment at someone else's achievement. 
It's competitive in an ugly, mean-spirited way that sees the world in a zero-sum game. Envy is one of the seven deadly sins, so-called, because they give rise to every other form of sin. St. Thomas Aquinas actually went on to add that envy, in some ways, is the worst of the deadly sins because, unlike the others, it doesn't even offer us any pleasure. There's no pleasure in envy. It is self-imposed sadness in the face of another's joy. Another thing about envy, we tend to exercise it in our own lanes. What does that mean? Well, for instance, moms. Moms probably aren't jealous of artists or architects or astronauts. They're jealous of other moms. Athletes are going to be jealous of other athletes, chefs of other chefs, movie stars of other movie stars. And believe me, pastors can be very jealous of other pastors. The danger of envy to our hearts is easy to appreciate because it's so unattractive. But there's another danger. It's the danger to our relationships, and here's why. With just a little practice, probably at a very early age, we become really adept. We get really good at hiding envy. And then it comes out. It comes out in passive-aggressive ways. It comes out sideways, sabotaging someone else's good idea, diminishing another's achievement, bearing another's good news and bad news, and thereby damaging, perhaps even destroying, a relationship. We see envy in full display in today's first reading and today's gospel reading, but we only have time to take a look at the gospel. We're in Mark's gospel, As we mentioned last week, the apostles had to grow and mature spiritually in their walk with the Lord. They did not start out as spiritual giants, not at all. And we see just how petty they could be in this episode taken from Mark's ninth chapter. At that time, John said to Jesus, teacher, we saw someone driving out demons in your name. We tried to prevent him because he does not follow us. Now, let me pause there, because if you're not a Christ follower or you're new to church, you might hear that and think, demons? Really? Are you kidding me? That's exactly why I don't go to church. And if that's your initial reaction, I understand that that's, that's fine, that's okay. I believe in demons. But if you don't, that's, that's fine. You certainly don't have to believe in demons to to grasp the gist of this story. But even if you don't believe in demons, I think you would agree, you've had the experience, and so have I, that there are times when there's just a bad spirit afloat. We can feel it. A darkness prevailing over a conversation, a sudden discomfort, a creepiness creeping in. Meetings where there's nothing but criticism and and destructive dialogue. Family vacations that descend into conflict and division. You've had the experience of an otherwise reasonable, ordinary person acting out in self-destructive and hurtful ways. Or the times you yourself 
have gotten angry or upset. And some of it was you for sure, but it was almost like something or someone else was pushing you in the wrong direction, pulling you to overreact. Even though we live in a culture that doubts the existence of personal demons, when someone is suffering with anxiety, depression, paranoia, bipolar disorder, addictions, we often say that they're struggling with their demons. The point is, our Christian faith says there are evil spirits, Scripture calls them demons, and they create all manner of disruption. And we can all agree that there's quite a lot of disruption afloat. Anyway, John witnessed some of this disruption as well as someone who was dealing with it positively and effectively. And what did he do? How did John respond? Is he supportive? Does he encourage the guy or better yet, cheer him on? Not quite. In fact, he tries to shut him up and shut him down. Why? Because he does not follow us. Because He's not on our team. He's not one of us because he doesn't have proper authorization. No one's given him permission because he doesn't even have a permit from Baltimore County to chase out demons. (laughs) Sounds like a solid argument, right? Except it's a lie. It's not the real reason at all. The real reason, John, is jealous. He's as jealous as he can be. And remember, this is John, the beloved disciple, the fellow who stood alongside of Mary at the foot of the cross, Jesus' clear favorite, and he's as jealous as can be. How do we know? Well, in another place in Mark's gospel, we learn that at least on one occasion, the disciples themselves tried to cast out demons. They tried and they couldn't do it. They tried, and they failed. John and the others are just jealous that this seller is effectively doing what they themselves, at least at this point, couldn't do. And just as a footnote to the whole question of demons, Scripture also tells us that the favored weapon demons use against us to divide us, to distract us, is envy. You've probably never even tried to prevent someone from driving out demons. If you have, I'd love to talk to you after Mass today. (laughs) But maybe, just maybe, you've been guilty of shutting down a good idea because it wasn't your idea. Blocking another from achieving some goal because you yourself could never achieve that goal. Criticizing someone else's marriage because it looks happier than yours. Envy happens at home, at, at work, in school, really everywhere. It just happens. I have to admit, like John in the story, I felt envious of some of my colleagues in the field of parish renewal. Their success, their publications, their conferences, their speaking engagements are all serving the exact same goals Rebuilt aspires to serve. And you know what? Sometimes their success hurts my heart. Why? Because it's not good work? No, because it's not my work. 
And frankly, I've been on the receiving end of envy too. I know it all too well. There are people who are envious of this parish. They say hurtful things, dishonest things. In spite of the many good things going on here, they say bad things. Are they bad people? No, of course not. They're just victims of envy. You know what? Envy is stupid. It is. It's just stupid. It only tears down. It can't build up. It only divides. It can't unite. It only brings sorrow and sadness. It can't bring joy. And it's especially ungodly. Over and over again, Jesus explains to the disciples the the generous spirit, the generous nature of God. And even here, he uses this occasion to remind John of God's generosity. He goes so far as to say, anyone who gives you even a cup of water will be rewarded. When we hold on to envy, it's self-imposed sadness. And it really only hurts ourselves. A basic, ungenerous response to the people around us impoverishes only us. On the other hand, God promises to reward disproportionately, lavishly, effusively, those who choose generous responses. Even the simplest kindness, hardly worth acknowledging, a glass of water brings rewards. In our heads and on our hearts, we know envy is so stupid, and it makes more sense to celebrate others. But actually, it makes a lot more sense. Think about it. If I only celebrate when I win, if I only celebrate my wins, then I can only celebrate, I can only be happy at best some of the time. If, on the other hand, I can learn, I can cultivate a more generous spirit, then my capacity for happiness expands to more of the time or much of the time or potentially all of the time. So how do, how do we do it? How do we bring our head and hearts in alignment when it comes to envy? Well, first thing, acknowledge it. Acknowledge the envy in your heart. Envy is so ugly, we tend to disguise it. We call it by different names and dress it up to look like something it's not, like constructive criticism. If someone else's success is hurting your heart, acknowledge it. Name it for what it is. You can do it quietly to yourself. You can speak it out loud to another person. By all means, take it to prayer. Better yet, bring it to confession. We have confessions every Saturday from three to five. Second, fake it until you make it. When you're envious of someone else, start making it your habit. Go out of your way to praise them, to celebrate their success with them. Write them a handwritten note. That will have a lot of impact on you. Third, rather than holding on to envy in your heart, use it. Use it to fuel change and growth. Envy isn't so much a choice as it is a reaction. Like anger, it just happens. And it happens to everyone. But like anger, the choice is, what do we do with it? 
And like anger, if we hold on to it, if we hold on to it, it grows. And that's when it becomes a problem for us. If, on the other hand, we can find our way to use it effectively to fuel growth and change, it can actually be a positive force. It's true. It can actually be a positive force. Maybe my envy at her marriage springs from my own quite beautiful desire for a great marriage and can inspire me to work harder at mine. Maybe my jealousy at the health of their family or the success of their business is rooted in my own noble and high aspirations for the future and can be motivational moving forward. It's a question of actually using envy to form more generous responses. And that's just going to be a more effective way to live.